Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the Long War. discuss the recent report from the United Nations Security Council's analytical support and sanctions and monitoring team. My co-host and editor at FDD's Long War Journal, as well as the senior analyst at the Bridgeway Foundation, that's Caleb Weiss. Caleb is here. We're going to discuss that report. Caleb, great to talk to you again. Yeah, good to be back after a long hiatus. Yeah, we've had a lot going on a lot of coverage, obviously, of the war in the Middle East. Haven't had a lot of time to turn to the jihadism issues and the issues discussed in this report. And there's a lot to discuss, so I'm looking forward to it. Our very special guest, probably our most frequented guest, our good friend Edmund Fitton Brown is joining us. Edmund is the former coordinator for the United Nations Sanctions and Monitoring Team, the former ambassador for the United uh, Kingdom to Yemen. Currently, he's a senior advisor to the Counter Extremism Project. And Edmund is our project director for FDD's Axis of Resistance project, which we are launching shortly. Edmund, welcome back to uh, Generation Jihad. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be back and great to be on the team. Yes, yes. I'm really excited. I'm looking forward to the work we're going to do, um, not just with the Axis of Resistance project. Uh, of course, that's with talking about Ar- that's Iran's Axis of Resistance, all of the militias and groups and that Iran supports throughout the Middle East. But uh, Edmund and I are, have an opportunity to do more work with things like uh, related to the jihadism side as well and discuss the, the monitoring and team reports and any, any other key news. So, Edmund, it's really exciting time for us here at the Long War Journal and Generation Jihad to have you on board. Thank you again. Yeah. Well, so, of, of course, we're going to discuss today the, the latest report. But we're just going to call it the monitoring team. I get tongue-tied every time I, I try to uh, name it. I'm sure I got it wrong in once or twice in the lead. Um, but uh, so, yeah, the, the current report is out, and this covers al-Qaeda and the Taliban's activities globally. Um, I always say these reports are, are fascinating. It's I think it's the best product out there when looking at the um, the threat of the that al-Qaeda's networks uh, as well as the networks of the Islamic State pose to the, not just the United States, but to the international community. Um, Never perfect. I think the facts in them are great. The monitoring team report is, uh, or the monitoring team, look, they never get everything 100% right. And I never agree 100% with their analysis. I'm sure Edmund would agree with that and Caleb as well. But, you know, we're we're in a a high degree of confidence with the information. The information is solid and it's stood up over the test of time. And the analysis is good. Certainly, there's points that are debatable. But um, before we get into the details of the report, Edmund, can you? There's, there's been some criticism online about this report, particularly because on issues like on Afghanistan, where it is completely in disagreement with the assessment from the Biden administration and U.S. intelligence. There's criticism how the team is formed. Um, how it conducts its business, how it gathers its information. So, Edmund, I know you've done this in the past. But can you just give us a brief refresher? How is the monitoring team um, comprised? How does it gather its information? Does it do its own analysis? Tell us how the sausage is made um, behind the scenes. Sure. Yeah, happy to do that, Bill. And I mean, you know, you're absolutely right. The monitoring team 
you'll never get everything right. We're reporting in a very sensitive area, an area that is, by definition, is highly secretive. And so, you know, we're seeking to uh, develop and share insights uh, into these very shadowy groups and uh, make um, complicated um, uh, calculations about risk. Um, so you're not ever going to get to 100% accuracy. But I think this, I think, as you said, this is the best thing out there. And there's, the reason for, the, for that is as follows. So the monitoring team is, uh, at its core, is 10 experts who have a wide range of uh, previous uh, background, but many of them have an intelligence background. Some of them have uh, financial intelligence background, some have legal background, some have diplomatic background. And uh, the monitoring team has a Security Council mandate, which is respected by the vast majority of member states, to engage with their counterterrorism agencies. That's to say their intelligence security services, their national security structures, uh, their defense agencies. And the monitoring team travels the world and it goes and talks to people whom nobody else in the UN can access. And frankly, very few people who are writing in this field have access to those kind of people. And always with the consent of our interlocutors, the monitoring team would uh, would seek to put, to declassify the information where that information was acknowledged to be declassifiable and put it into the public domain in these reports. So the kernel of these reports, and they are 10,500 words, they're long, they're detailed, they're global in their scope. Um, and the kernel of this information is coming from intelligence services. Now, the key qualifier to that is to say that, of course, the monitoring team has its own capability to triangulate and to work out whether the information it's being given is credible or not. So sometimes a member state will say something that is plainly not credible. And in that kind of case, uh, the monitoring team will not report it unless, uh, and we might come to this in a moment in the podcast, uh, when we talk about the presence of Saif al-Adil in Iran, if that, if that member state really wants to be quoted in saying something that's obviously not true, well, then uh, then maybe the monitoring team will, uh, say, will, say, will say it. But with the caveat, one member state insists, one member state claims that this is true. Um, so there is the ability to triangulate between different points of view. You might talk to do two different member states that have very different perspectives on an event, and then you work out what you can say with a high level of confidence is true. And so that is one of the processes that the, the experts go through to produce the report. The experts are also supported by the United Nations Secretariat. And there is a technical edit process, but it's more than that. There is a huge amount of uh, environmental support from the wider UN, the wider, um, uh, the wi the wider uh, political affairs officers of the UN who help the monitoring team to function and support it and provide it with an enormous amount of uh, threshold information, what's, what's in open source, what's in other UN relevant UN reporting. Um, and so it means that anything outlandish uh, is likely to be 
carefully challenged, both in terms of whether it fits with other member state reporting and also uh, whether it's uh, whether it's impossibly at odds uh, with, uh, with 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 sort of widely, uh, widely accepted knowledge of, of, of what is true in other areas. And then the last thing I'll say about criticism is that, you know, of course, the monitoring team welcomes criticism. It always wants to be told maybe you should look at this possibility or uh, have you considered that actually that might be the explanation. So there's a constant learning process going on. I can certainly remember one point that you challenged a long time ago about Yemen and 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 I was in the monitoring team at that time. We went to great lengths to bottom out whether that was genuinely accurate. What you know, what what we had what we had said and what had been contradicted. Had we actually got it wrong, and what was the truth? So so there is a learning process that goes on. But where we do, uh, I think, draw the line is when you get ill-intentioned criticism. So and the best example of this, and you'll love this, Bill. It's the Taliban. Every single time the monitoring team releases a report. The very next day, the Taliban immediately goes public and trashes it. Oh, this is all lies. Oh, this is all manipulation from the P5. It's all manipulation from the Americans or the Brits. Um, it, you know, we would never harbor terrorists in Afghanistan. We would never have a relationship with Al Qaeda. And that sort of criticism, well, frankly, we welcome it. There is nothing better than having a professional set of liars like the Taliban go head to head with our analysis. We know we're going to win that one. You know, Edmund, what always struck me, and you mentioned, I, I can't even remember what that was about Yemen, but I do. Re- what I do recall is, and again, this was, if I recall, Tom Jocelyn and I, was it over the death of? It was. It was, over the, it was over the temporary uh, incarceration of Khalid yes. Batafi. Right, and and yeah, and, and what I remember about that incident was how welcoming you guys were to discuss that. And Tom and I understood where you were coming from. We understood the process that you got, you were operating under. So, you know, I'm not even sure what we would say it was criticism as much as just, hey, this was a professional disagreement, which, and you made a, your point about this being very, I always say we're peering, trying to look at terrorist organizations, how they're operating, what their leadership's like, what their intentions. We're peering into a black box and we're, we're reaching in there and grabbing pieces. We get bits of information. We're doing our best. Those who are honest about how, you know, look, people always say about me, well, Bill, you just take the Taliban and you'll always say they're aligned. But if I saw a clear break between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, I would report it tomorrow because that's what honest, there would be a change that would be earth shattering. Yeah, I would welcome that, first of all, because that would be a good thing. I still would think the Taliban was a bad organization. And we've reported, you know, the split between the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda, we reported that. But anyway. My point being, I was always impressed by how you, you've conducted your business. I, you know, a leader in this report, there's the, a report that the, the head of, um, you're re- retracting something, you know, but look, this was publicly out there that it was thought that the head of the Islamic State Khorasan province was killed a year ago. I think that was in the report a year ago. And you guys are now saying, hey, we don't think this is right. That's honesty. That's what, what analysts who are being honest do. Um, and I'm just going to one real quick comment. You, there's actually an instance in the, you mentioned that one member state says there's an instance of that in the report. That's where Iran is denying that any members of Al Qaeda. Oh, it doesn't say it's Iran, but who else is going to? You know, I could read between the line. The report says one member state denies that. I'm paraphrasing. Denies that Al Qaeda leaders are present in Iran. Of course, Iran is going to be the state that's going to deny that. But that's good. It's in the report. You note it. Um, there, you know, uh, there's pushback from one state. So I think, again, these are all things that I find. Um, 
This is what makes this report remarkable to me. I'm also going to take a, a real quick point to note. There is another organization that does great work, and that's the um, the Special Investigator General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. I always say if all U.S. government agencies operated like SIGAR and like the monitoring team, I'd actually have some confidence in my government and intelligence services. So. And let me just say one disclaimer, Bill. Of course, I'm not with the monitoring team anymore. Absolutely. I don't, I don't know what that one member state was that denied the presence of Saif al-Adil in Iran. But uh, as you say, reading between the lines, I'd be very surprised if it wasn't Iran. Exactly. Well, let's let's get into that. Let's um, you, you had mentioned the report notes that Saif al-Adil is in Iran. Um, his son is leading al-Qaeda in Yemen. Um, let's kick this around. This isn't new news um, about Saif al-Adil being in Iran, but this is consistent reporting. Um, what else does the report say about Saif al-Adil and his relationship with, uh, with Iran um, and how it's operating or how he is interacting with al-Qaeda, particularly in Afghanistan? Yeah. So, uh, and I think this is the right place to start, Bill, because this is, for me, one of the biggest features of the report is around this. Now, it's not specifically what it says about SAFE, because as you say, there actually isn't a huge amount of new information about SAFE himself in the report. And, you know, the fact that he's uh, been long established in Iran is something that that's actually, that's old news. That's been that's been true for many years. Um, and what is interesting is the, the link to Yemen through his son and the link to Afghanistan and that question mark over. So, you know, obviously, People listening to this, they will all know the story of Ayman al-Zawahiri and uh, his killing uh, in uh, in Afghanistan and the fact that when he was killed, Saif al-Adil, the number two, uh, took over as the head of al-Qaeda. But neither. So al-Qaeda could not say that. They still haven't said that publicly, because if they announce Saif as the leader of al-Qaeda, they would be acknowledging that Ayman al-Zawahiri was dead. And the Taliban, of course, have spun one of their ridiculous lies about al-Qaeda. They claim that they looked at the site of this outrageous American uh, intervention in Kabul, and they could see no evidence at all that anyone uh, uh, answering to the description of Ayman al-Zawahiri uh, was uh, in the rubble. And so uh, because the Taliban have camped out on that, they've effectively denied that Ayman al-Zawahiri was ever in Afghanistan and therefore denied that he was killed in Kabul. It puts al-Qaeda in a very difficult position because they can't announce their new leader without contradicting the Taliban's narrative. And there's a whole dynamic going on there between Afghanistan and Iran, and it's very well covered, I think, in the report. What you have essentially is it is true that the Taliban has concerns about what it does for their interests if extremists in Afghanistan do something directly to embarrass them. And there is nothing more embarrassing than getting yourself droned in the middle of Kabul. So they are cautious. And uh, it means that, you know, it's highly unlikely, for example, that the, the, the still substantial al-Qaeda presence in Afghanistan poses an immediate threat of external operations. But, of course, the report has a lot of good information about training camps and things of that kind. And an interesting sort of geographical point that a lot of the sort of AQ-associated um, installations appear to be um, not too far from the Iranian border. And so I think what we know from uh, 
you know, this is other source reporting. This is nothing to do with the monitoring team, um, and it's not well established. But you've got conversations going on between the Iranians and the Taliban about, you know, well, what, you know, what do we do to, you know, to manage the risk? You know, of course we support Al Qaeda, but you know, we don't, we don't want to um, bring on kinetic action. And so there is a, there's a question mark there about how the Iranians and the Afghans between them manage that association with uh, al-Qaeda. And so I think it's probably true that the uh, activity that is happening in Afghanistan is somewhat limited in its scope, although very interestingly, the report points to AQIS, al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent, uh, licensed involvement with the Pakistani Taliban in terrorist activity against Pakistan. And of course, uh, Pakistan is furious about this. It's, uh, I suppose it feels disappointed that having, you know, having been very supportive of the Afghan Taliban while they were in the insurgency, the Afghan Taliban is colluding with the Pakistani Taliban to uh, allow and indeed to support terrorist activity inside Pakistan. So that's another part of this complicated dynamic. The last part of this complicated dynamic, and I think we might want to come to it as a separate item on AQAP, but we mentioned Safe Sun is in Yemen. And what is that about? And at least part of it, of course, is that Safe will be thinking, okay, I'm in Iran right now, but what if I had to leave? Where would I go? Could I go to Kabul? Probably not. Could I go to some obscure location uh, in Western Afghanistan near the Iranian border? Maybe. But could I go to Yemen? Uh, that's also a possibility. Yeah, let me, um, and I misidentified his son uh, as the leader of al-Qaeda. He's a, a, le a leader within al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. I'm going to read directly what the report says about his son. Um, uh, I'm going to strip out some of the some of the notations in here, but here it goes, quote, Al-Qaeda further can heighten control over AQAP, especially through the son of Saif al-Adil, name is Khalid, Muhammad Salahuddin Zindani, who resides in Yemen and is close to AQAP senior leadership. Khalid delivers Al-Qaeda directives and plays a critical role in recruitment, media, and managing AQAP internal strife. His travels to southern, Levin, Le southern Yemen have intensified since mid-August with this movements protected by the security leader, Ibrahim al-Ban. Um, yes, it's an interesting dynamic. Al-Qaeda has, AQAP has played an important role for Al-Qaeda. Remember that Nasser al-Wahashi, who served as Osama bin Laden's aide-de-camp, um, he was Al-Qaeda's general manager. The U.S. killed him in a drone strike in 2000, I believe. Um, but he was, you know, as general manager, he was in direct line to take control of Al-Qaeda very influential. So Yemen has always played a critical node for Al-Qaeda um, as part of its leadership. And this is part of Al-Qaeda diversifying his leader, its leadership out of Afghanistan and Pakistan, um, which they began doing once the U.S. drone campaign kicked up and run, I would say, really intensified in under President Bush under in 2008. Um, I want to turn to, uh, I'm going to, we'll turn to Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan but before we do that, I want to stay on Yemen um, real quick. The report notes that al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula may be in some kind of truce with the Houthis. And I found that to be a very interesting point because I've noticed that AQAP is mainly conducting its attacks against the Saudi UAE and the you know, Yemeni, the nominal Yemeni government, um, the rump Yemeni government. But most of its the reports of its attacks are all directed against them. I really haven't seen activity against the Houthi. So this is one of those things where the report mentions this, and that that gives it a lot of credence. 
Can you uh, elaborate a little bit on that? Yep, Ambit. Absolutely, and and um, again, this is the, so. This is the critical sort of final leg of this sort of Al Qaeda um, central discussion, including Afghanistan, including Iran, including the association with TTP and the attacks on Pakistan, and then including Yemen. And I also want to just make that point: if you're looking for big themes in this report, I think a big theme is the truce between extremists. And that exists in this truce between Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and the Houthis. But it also, of course, uh, exists very troublingly in the Western Sahel. And I know we'll come to this with Caleb later, um, where instead of killing each other, you now have ISGS, the Greater Greater Sahara, uh, and JNIM, the Al-Qaeda affiliate, um, having deconflicted and formed a truce and obviously then becoming collectively much more uh, of a threat than when they were wasting a lot of their energy on killing each other. So that is another interesting general theme of the report. But coming back to your point about AQAP, um, this is this is really interesting and important. Um, this link with Safe Sun and Safe Sun's involvement with media. Now remember, quite apart from the Houthis in Yemen and the, you know what's been happening in the Red Sea recently. The two crucial things about AQAP were, first of all, media, it's active, the media activity of AQAP. And secondly, uh, it was the external threat. And that was particularly through innovative IED uh, technology. And they had that master bomb technician, of course, as Siri, who was uh, also taken out by the uh, United States, um, but not before he had sort of established AQAP as a sort of a leader in that field. It was one of their sort of specializations, and, and it kind of defines their ambition as an aggressive branch of AQ uh, of Al Qaeda. So, why why is why is this interesting? This is really interesting post seventh of October, and the reason for that is because again, this is a major theme of the report. And it is the agility of Al-Qaeda in responding to and exploiting the uh, 7th of October and the events that followed. And in particular, uh, the footage that is uh, emerging of of the consequences of the Israeli military operation in Gaza. And this is where Al-Qaeda, and I know this is music to your ears, Bill, because you've always talked about Al-Qaeda as the bigger long-term strategic threat than uh, than ISIL. Um, Al-Qaeda is so much better placed on this than ISIL is because ISIL is obsessed with its uh, with its uh, its unbending theology and Hamas are Hamas are apostates. You know, they participate in elections there. They claim to be nationalists. You know, they, they're not good Muslims. Um, so ISIL has struggled to benefit from the inspiration provided by the fact that there is now a spike in global uh, Muslim feeling against Israel. Whereas Al-Qaeda, through um, patient old Zawahiri and all of his writings on Jerusalem, um, Al-Qaeda was particularly well-placed to respond, and they responded fast. And I think this replace, I think this reflects the fact that they now have more agile leadership, and Safe is more agile than Zawahiri was. And Safe's son is a very effective um, arm of his father in Yemen. And so you had this sudden ramping up of Al Qaeda propaganda being published from Yemen, from AQAP, to seize on the moment to gain that inspiration. 
uh, for Al-Qaeda and for inspired attacks uh, to take place. And this is something that we should all be concerned about. This is why the report says that the threat has increased in non-conflict zones in places like Europe. It's because the risk of somebody being inspired to attack post 7th of October has increased and Al-Qaeda are seeking to surf, surf that wave and they look as if they are surfing it quite successfully, although we obviously it's premature because we haven't seen concrete results yet. And then the, 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 uh, the, the last thing, the key thing here to, to finish on is this truce between Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and the Houthis. And the Houthis are a proxy of Iran and uh, Saif al-Adil, the leader of al-Qaeda, is in Iran and his son is in Yemen. And we have to ask ourselves, is this a coincidence? Iran is the ringmaster of the axis of resistance. And the extent to which Iran can also co-opt al-Qaeda in that axis of resistance, maybe not as a fully-fledged member of it, but nevertheless as a sort of an asset and, and, and even an occasional proxy, um, that is really interesting. And whether that dynamic is one of the reasons why AQAP and the Houthis are no longer killing each other is a really important question to be answered. Well, and the last thing Eben just said, I think uh, whether you know Iran can co-opt al-Qaeda, there's historical precedents for that. I mean, the 1998 embassy bombings, they trained with the, the suicide bombings trained, uh, the members were trained in Lebanon by Hezbollah on the orders of Iran. So there's historical precedent for that, for sure. Um, another thing I want to bring up is, you know, the the speed and tenacity of Al-Qaeda's media, not just from ACAP, but around the world on you know the current war in Gaza has been tremendous. Um, you've seen Shabab put out numerous statements. You've seen Shabab host pro-Palestine rallies inside their territories. Uh, you saw the West African branch, JNM, release a statement. AQIM came out of its moribund uh, status to release a statement. Uh, AQIS released a statement. So this is a coordinated effort uh, being driven by Al-Qaeda's leadership to really capitalize on this, this collective anger around you know the images that, that had been brought up from, from Gaza. Um, and you know, I, I think this is the, the more important part, is, is that flexibility that they've seen because they are decentralized, if that makes sense. Uh, Al-Qaeda has a decentralized media apparatus for each sort of branch has their own, their own media wings. This allows al-Qaeda more flexibility than the Islamic State, which not only being so obsessed over this religious, you know, rig you know, rigidness is the centrality of the organization. Everything has to come from the, the central. Everything has to come from the top. So the messaging that the Islamic State has done on the war in Gaza has come from its central leadership. Uh, it really kind of limits the branches of what they could actually do, uh, at least publicly facing. You know, obviously, we don't know what's happening behind the scenes or in some cases on the ground where there's less reporting, but at least, you know, in open source, public facing, all the messaging from the Islamic states come from the top, whereas Al-Qaeda kind of spread that message out from not only the top, but on the ground as well as we're seeing in, in Somalia. That's excellent, Caleb. You had written some excellent reports on this, and I know you're quite aware of the Al-Qaeda's messaging. You know, and while they're decentralized in, in their media, you see... Decentralized operations, but a centralized media strategy. It, exactly. That's I should have worded that, that better, but that's what it is. is they, they all have their own media outlets, but the overall media strategy is... And the themes the, of, the, of what they're yeah. saying is very similar. And that is and you clearly... That, you see that all the time. Yeah. 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 In the announcements and, of uh, when a leader is killed or when a new leader is appointed... Um, not only an al-Qaeda leader, let's say that there's a there's a big name jihadi killer, not necessarily a part of al-Qaeda, you know, what we would, 
consider Al-Qaeda proper, all the branches were released a statement eulogizing that figure, which you know suggests you know something from the top. Or another thing is when Shabab and JNIM did their you know Jerusalem will not be Judaized campaign starting in 2019. Obviously, these were two separate campaigns in both West Africa and East Africa. Yet those directives had to come from somewhere that they're doing them at the same exact time. Yeah, no coincidence there. All right, let's um let's turn to the report um on Al Qaeda in Afghanistan. Um, this, of course, was of great interest to me. The previous reporting um, noted Al-Qaeda was running training camps in, in six of the 34 provinces. The new report expands upon that. It's, uh, it's or The current report says that Al-Qaeda opened eight new training camps in an additional four provinces. So now Al-Qaeda is running training camps in 10 of Afghanistan's 34 provinces. It says some of these camps may be transitory. Yeah, probably so. Um, the other thing it says is Al-Qaeda is running madrasas in five different provinces of course these are religious schools that are used i'm going to assume to train the youth of afghanistan on al-qaeda's ideology there's a new base to quote stock weaponry and quote um in panshir of all places that al-qaeda so al-qaeda's stockpiling weapon weaponry in panshir province panshir if we all recall that was where the last vestiges of the resistance to the Taliban with the Northern, uh, or I'm sorry, the National Resistance Front, previously the Northern Alliance. Um, so Al-Qaeda not only took a bastion of anti-Al-Qaeda sentiment and, and resistance and made it into, a, into their armory. And then it also describes a facilitation network into Iran. Um, it identifies a, a network that is being used to um in three separate provinces so it's interesting the previous report noted that al-qaeda is running safe houses in four provinces um the um the current report note no, noted that the safe houses are in the same four provinces herat farah helmand and and kabul province but herat farah and um herat farah and helmand are all on the border and this report notes that al-qaeda quote maintains safe houses to facilitate the movement between, I'm assuming, of, of members between Afghanistan and the Islamic bubble of, of Iran. So what do we have here? Um, you know, look, there, th- this is one of the areas where I disagree with the, the analysis of the report. It identifies the Islamic State Khorasan province as being a greater threat to Afghanistan and to the region and the international community. I absolutely disagree with that assessment um, because look at what we're witnessing here. Al-Qaeda is building the infrastructure. The report note that Al-Qaeda is in some way constrained. I agree with that. Um, I also believe my analysis of this is Al-Qaeda is constraining itself, and it's using the time to build this terrorist infrastructure, safe houses, training camps, the network into Iran, stockpiling weapons. I mean, what do we think Al-Qaeda's is ultimate goal to use all of this for? But anyway, that being said, um, this is this is what to me what makes Al Qaeda far more dangerous. And all, the other thing too, the movement of the Taliban in Pakistan, which is supported by Al Qaeda, some of these camps are being used to train Al Qaeda suicide bombers, is launching far far more attacks in the region in Pakistan than the Islamic State is doing inside of Afghanistan and any other country. So this is where again this is is it's an analytical disagreement I have with the sanctions and monitoring team, the monitoring team's report. But, um, you know, we're, we're allowed to disagree. Edmund, um, your thoughts on, on this point? Yeah, I, I, I think it's possible to square the circle, you know, Bill. I, I agree with you. And at the same time, I, I understand what it is that the report is, is saying. Um, 
you know, you're absolutely right. If you if you say once you take in the Pakistan dimension and the association between Al Qaeda and uh, TTP, you are talking about some really serious international terrorist activity. And if I were if I was sitting in Islamabad, I would see that as being you know a very very serious threat. Um, I, I think you know for some time the um, the consensus that we've seen from member states has been that the next big attack in the West or in a non-conflict zone, so not where there's already, uh, you know, where these groups are embedded in insurgencies and able to, to, to carry out a lot of violence already, but that sort of that eye-catching event on the streets of Paris or the streets of London, streets of New York, wherever, um, that the most likely source of that next attack was probably ISIL rather than Al-Qaeda. Now, I think it's absolutely up for debate as to whether the 7th of October has changed that calculation. And the report doesn't claim to draw a conclusion on that, but it does flag up the fact that al-Qaeda has exploited the 7th of October effectively. But going back to Afghanistan, I agree that the the, the activity of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan is extremely concerning. and It should be extremely concerning to us all as a medium to long-term threat. But it is also true that a clear and present danger in the non-conflict zones over recent years and and right up to the minute has been established to be uh, posed by ISIL Khorasan. And I don't mean just the ISIL Khorasan attack in Iran, which was which was a big one, um, but also the use by ISIL Khorasan of Central Asian nationals, uh, particularly Tajiks, sometimes Uzbeks. And the number of those sort of, um, I would say, inspired but also partially facilitated attack plots that have been frustrated in Europe recently. And there are current court cases, people who are being prosecuted right now. Um, there have been recent arrests. And so I, I think that that still gives you a reason to be very concerned about ISIL Khorasan. And, and, and therefore, the distinction I would make is that is that you know if something were to if there were to be a mass murder on the streets of Berlin tomorrow, I would think it was most likely to be associated with ISIL Khorasan rather than with Al Qaeda in Afghanistan. Yeah, I, I guess I look for more. I see that infrastructure being built with the support of the state, which is the Taliban. There's just a greater long term threat, greater capacity for Al Qaeda if it decides to unleash it. But yeah, I mean, this is just a matter of ranking a threat here. This is where the disagreement lies. Caleb, you have any thoughts on um, on this subject? I mean, just to double on what Edmund said about the, the Central Asians. I mean, the Islamic State, uh, it, its Khorasan province, does sort of maintain a, a local propaganda arm. And this is, I guess, I'm kind of contradicting myself earlier, but there are exceptions to every rule. For whatever reason, Khorasan province is allowed to have its own media apparatus, and I, I think this is hugely because of the Central Asians, um, because ISIL-K or ISIS-K, whatever you want to call it, they are really reaching out to Tajiks, Uzbeks, Uyghurs, you know, Kazakhs, whatever, uh, and they've really ramped it up in the last few months. Um, there's uh, Lucas Weber at uh, Militant Wire. He does a great job of covering this, um, but it, it's really staggering of the last, you know, again, several months of just how much propaganda is coming out in Tajik and Uzbek language. Uh, and I think this is Partly why ISIL-K is allowed to have that is they are reaching out to Uzbeks and Tajiks, not only in Afghanistan and in the region, but the diaspora. And they're you know, increasingly very effective at that. Um, so I would 
I would agree with Evan on, you know, at least in the short term, if we're looking at attacks in Europe from a Central Asian, it's more than likely going to be ISIS-K um, than Al-Qaeda. But, you know, medium to long term, as we've stated numerous times on this podcast, that we as we've written about many times, the long-term threat is always going to be Al-Qaeda. That's just how they operate. That's how they think. Whereas the Islamic State is more immediate and we need it now. Let's turn to the Islamic State and its new leader. Um, we don't even know who he is. Um, for the first time, there's uncertainty over his uh, national, over his nationality and even where he is located. So it was, oh, you know, previously the Islamic State's leader has either been in Iraq or in Syria. Um, so this would be a... a if if he was if the new leader of Al Qaeda of the Islamic State is not based in Iraq or Syria, this would be something uh, 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 earth shattering in in my opinion. Edmund, tell us what the report says about uh, the Islamic State's new leader or caliph, um, and what this means. Yeah, I, 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 so I, I think this is a central figure of the or central feature of the new report, and indeed it is in paragraph one. Uh, overview and evolution of the threat is is where this is uh, is tackled. Um, and I think rightly so. Um, so, as you know, um, ISIL has lost a succession of leaders and their life expectancy was just getting progressively shorter. So, you know, Baghdadi actually lasted for quite a while and then his successor lasted for a couple of years. And then you were down to people who would only only you know, they'd take the job and they'd be dead within the year. Um, and so this this intense uh, counter-terrorist pressure that they were under um, and yet they kept appointing the same kind of person again and again. It was always an Iraqi. And uh, they, the person was was normally located in Syria. Um, and we sort of, up until this report, we had taken that as being their modus operandi with the leadership. But one thing I want to highlight from the previous report from uh, uh, six months ago was that they reported the death of a man called Abu Sara al-Iraqi, uh, who was the head of the general directorate of provinces. And that guy uh, was described as maybe as a sort of a shadow leader of the organization. So he wasn't actually the number one, but he was perhaps the most powerful and the most important, most influential figure within the organization. And he was killed a year ago. And maybe that death was more important than the deaths of the various titular caliphs. Um, because what you feel now is that for the first time, there's an existential problem over succession. Maybe they're running out of people to appoint, you know, the sort of maybe the maybe the bench is getting uh, is getting depleted of people that they can actually bring up as as new leaders. Maybe it is just that sense that every time they appoint someone, there's almost like an investigative thread from the previous killing, uh, and, and and it follows that person, you know, until six months later, they're dead as well. And so for all of those reasons, it, I, I read into paragraph one of this report a hint that they think that the uh, business model may change and that maybe this new guy, Abu Hafs, you know, again, this is just a this is a, a nom de guerre. It's a cunha. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, you know, they, it's a name they can use in propaganda. Abu Haf says that you must, you know, fight the infidel. You must kill them wherever you find them, and that sort of thing. So they 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 can put they can put a name to this um, faceless individual, but that name is meaningless. It doesn't. It's not the name by which somebody was 
has a driving license or a passport. And of course, you want to find out who is this person? What is their civil ID? Where did they go to school? Why did they become uh, a terrorist? Have they spent time in prison uh, in, or in US custody or whatever it might be? And we know nothing about this guy. And there is this hint in paragraph one that maybe this time it's not an Iraqi. And maybe this time they're not in Syria. So this is obviously a huge intelligence gap that needs to be answered. And I, I hope that people will be studying it. Yeah, I mean, this is something I think it was either last podcast on the last report or something. Read my mind, Caleb. Yeah, because I brought up the possibility of, you know, what are the chances that the Islamic State with all these leadership losses kind of takes the Al Qaeda model of this you know, geographically dispersed leadership. And it seems like the, the monitoring team is now kind of, you know, gauging that possibility. And I think that that's a, it's a strong possibility because as Bill said earlier, you know, when the drone campaign ramped up on Al-Qaeda during the, the Obama administration, you know, they had they were forced to. And then there's, the Islamic State is really facing the same thing now where they can't keep leaderships. And they're, you know, they are shifting away probably from Caliphs to people like Abu Sara, where they are, you know, the GDP is more relevant than the actual caliph, but still, like having a geographically dispersed leadership only, you know, insulates your leadership. Uh, so it, to me, it just seems like a, you know, standard chain of progression here that, you know, they they, they turn to that model. So it really made me happy to see that the, that the UN report mentions that possibility. Yeah. And I think we may have mentioned this in the last podcast that we did on this, Caleb. It seems to me that that Abu, Abu Sara, right? That the, yeah, Abu Sara al-Iraqi. Yeah. He, he, it was almost like he was described as Al Qaeda's, what Al Qaeda would call its general manager, right? The guy, yeah, I mean, that's, that's essentially, that's and, essentially it because the GP oversees all the provinces, all the regional offices, which the regional offices are kind of the middle managers anyway. Yeah. So that's, that's what I, I recall us having that discussion. And that's what really fascinated me about this report. Um, it's, you know, look, is, do we know the answer to this? No. Um, it is it interesting that the, the United Nations is coming to possibly coming to the same conclusion that me have. And again, we're just guessing. We're peering into the black, black box, but we're, you know, it it looks taking right. Precedent. Yeah, we're taking precedent of what's happened to the other big global jihadi group. And look, I wouldn't be shocked if someone came along tomorrow and said, nope, that's not the way it is. And, you know, El the Islamic State says, here's our structure. They're never going to do that and come out and tell us. But uh, yeah, the, the, these are the interesting pieces of information that we believe. Uh, and it, it's just, it, just to add on to this, it just seems like the natural progression because, you know, you had Abu Sar, but there was another individual that was based in Somalia that was playing an outsized role for what his position actually was. And that was Bilal al-Sudani. Uh, he was the head of the Al-Qarara regional office in, in northern Somalia, Puntland. Um, you know, he was directing a lot of the, the funding, the operations, the support, logistical stuff for the Islamic State in Central Africa, Mozambique, and South Africa. But not only that, the the last UN sanctions report mentioned that Al-Qarar was sending, I think it was like $25,000, either a month or a year, to ISOK. Yeah, to monthly. Of course not. Yeah, and that was that was led by al-Sudani. So this is, to me, suggests that he was a way more influential leader than just someone in Somalia. So you were already kind of seeing, if you want to read the tea leaves, that they were kind of transitioning to, you know, we're going to place these strategically important people around the world that kind of, you know, insulate our top leadership. It makes it makes sense. If they want to survive as an organization, they have to adapt. This is what Al-Qaeda learned in the late 2000s. And 
yeah, it, there were problems for Al-Qaeda. Yeah, it lost key, what the government, U.S. intelligence services call key legacy leaders. And people think, well, once the legacy leaders are killed, well, you've defeated the group. But it all, that all really discounts that there's up-and-comers. Um, you know, no one knew who Abu Sar al-Iraqi was. Was he, you know, how old was he? Was he an initial founder of the Islamic State? It didn't matter. He was a very, by the time of his death, he was a very influential individual. And these groups are resilient. They are, um, they're adaptable too. That's what, and again, you know, if the Islamic State takes this model, um, I view them, you know, they get upped into be, look, I, I, Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, they're both very dangerous organizations. I always take it the Al-Qaeda plays the long game and they're more adaptable and more um, willing to compromise with local jihadist groups and and play well with others' countries. That's what makes them more dangerous. But as the Islamic and State... not only local jihadist groups, yes. local armed groups in general. Exactly. Which exactly. we should talk about, uh, it mentions that in the report, in the Sahel, where JNIM is kind of working with local Malian, you know, Azawadi groups, or Azawad being this the name that the local Tuaregs use for their, their nominal independent state. Of you know, JNIM has taken that that I don't know role, I guess, of, of working with non-Jihadi groups against the Malian state. Uh, that's Al Qaeda's MO. They do that all the time. They they don't necessarily have to work with jihadis as long as they're working towards the same nominal goal. And that's that's what makes them more dangerous to me. Yep, exactly. Um, and any last thoughts on this, gentlemen, before we turn to West Africa? I mean, you know, just the mention of Bilal al Sadani. I'm glad Caleb mentioned it. You know, that was that that's a recent episode, an important episode. And you know, the fact that Al Qarar office had emerged as the uh, essential um, node for funding for ISIL, uh, and and indeed Bilal al Sadani was killed by the Americans specifically because he they they attributed uh, his funding activities to um, some of the uh, ISIL operations uh, in Afghanistan. So that 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 shows that flexibility within ISIL. You know, we shouldn't be, they've, they've set out this regional network structure. Uh, it's been more successful in some, you know, some offices have flourished more than others. Some networks have flourished more than others. They've made some adjustments to to, to which, uh, which presences belong to which networks. But fundamentally, it shows that they are globally flexible. And so, yes, I mean, I think we, you know, we have to, we have to be open-minded about where, where the threat will concentrate. You know, and, and the point about some branches or some provinces being more effective than others. There's an ebb and flow to that. We've seen that with Al-Qaeda, right? AQAP at one point was the preeminent Al-Qaeda branch. And then, you know, the U.S. focused attention on it, killed some key leaders and um, was launching drone strikes, degrading Al-Qaeda capabilities in, in Yemen to agree. And then the civil war broke out there. And I think that hurt Al-Qaeda as well. The Houthis constrained Al-Qaeda to some degree. Somalia, in, in Somalia, the Shabab is probably, I would call, Al-Qaeda's preeminent branch, but things are looking good in West Africa. Things are looking good in, you know, so, it, it you know, in Afghanistan, there's an ebb and flow to this. And that's that's the point. These groups, if they can adapt to that, sometimes groups become more abundant and they come back in. And, you know, what, in the early or to, to late 2000s, you know, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb was a very powerful branch of Al-Qaeda. Um, Algeria and other other countries crack down on them, but they're still there, and that that persistence makes these group is what makes these groups and adaptability is what makes these groups dangerous. Let's move on to West Africa. Continues to slide into instability. Caleb, give us a breakdown. What is happening there, and what does the report say about Al Qaeda and the Islamic State's operations in West Africa? So I'll only mention 
the Sahel and some of the coastal states, and then Edmund can touch on Nigeria if he wants to. Um, but for at least the Sahel the report, you know, correctly mentions that JNIM is expanding activities, not only in Mali, but in Burkina Faso and Niger, and then spreading into the coastal states of Benin, Ghana, Togo, uh, Ivory Coast. Uh, this has been, been longstanding and stuff that's been happening for the last several years that we at the Long War Journal have covered extensively. So we don't really need to talk too much about that because uh, it's consistent with, with what's been happening. Uh, but more importantly is, you know, some of the, the the minor tidbits that kind of throws in there that I mentioned earlier of, you know, the report mentions JNIM is working with local Tuareg factions against the Malian army. Um, and this is sort of in response to the Malian army kind of going to war against these, these Tuareg factions. Now, I mean, not to get bogged down in history, but, you know, I did write an entire like 90 page thesis on this for, for grad school. It was published at West Point. But anyway, Al-Qaeda's MO for that region is that they do work with local organizations. So in 2012, when Al-Qaeda took over northern Mali, they did that with the help of these Tuareg groups and then eventually, you know, betrayed them. Well, they never really lost ties with a lot of these groups, uh, either due to, you know, familial connections, clan connections, whatever. So they've always had a relationship with some of these clan-based, you know, militia units in northern Mali. And that's what the report is talking about. As the Malian army is clashing with some of them, they're they're turning to JNIM as sort of uh, as a protector, as you know, as a you know auxiliary force or vice versa. Um, so I think that's super interesting and something that you know observers need to be you know more more observant of is that you know as if those relationships deepen, if they worsen, you know that could really affect the the conflict in northern Mali. Uh, and then secondly, is this detente between. JNIM and ISGS that Evan mentioned earlier. Now, JNIM and ISGS have had a detente before. They were some of the last two Al Qaeda and Islamic State branches, respectively, to go to war with each other. Um, but you know that earlier detente went into just absolutely bloody warfare. I mean, for years, hundreds of fighters on both sides were killed. Um, and then last summer, you know, we got some rumblings on social media, local social media, local reports that. Hey, these groups stop fighting each other. They they seem to have this secret alliance, uh, and you can kind of see that in the attack patterns. Where it seems like JNIM has kind of let ISGS have Manaka, which is in the extreme north of Mali. If ISGS doesn't really attack JNIM in like the tri-border region of Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger, and that seems to be holding. So it's really cool to see the UN confirming those rumors, uh, confirming those those reports that that detente actually did happen and is still holding to this day. Um, obviously the big question is when does that break? If it breaks, uh, you know, cause it's going to be another shit show for Northern Mali, um, worse than it already is. Um, cause what, what is effectively happening is these zones of influence where JNIM is consolidating their power over a lot of Northern Mali, but leaving the extreme North ISGS. So ISGS now is controlling, physically controlling territory in Northern Mali, implementing Sharia, doing the Hadood punishments, doing, you know, what they normally do elsewhere. And, you know, this is this is good for the global Islamic State image. Um, but as the report also notes, UN, the IS Central doesn't really highlight a lot of what they do in the Sahel um, for a number of reasons, probably. But they do underreport what's actually happening there. So ISGS is probably a lot stronger, doing a lot more than what they actually are showing to the world. Um, and then lastly, just to mention... Um, kind of teared up for Edmund if he wants to talk about Nigeria, is that as JNIM is pushing further into coastal West Africa, 
ISGS also has a nominal presence sort of in northern Benin, where they've sort of used the national forest of northern Benin as a, you know, a, a transit route between Nigeria and the Sahel to move fighters and equipment and supplies. So both groups are now sort of threatening a contiguous battle space, effectively from Mauritania, the borders of Mauritania, all the way down to Cameroon, uh, you know, with with Al-Qaeda's nominal branch in, in Nigeria and Saru uh, being sort of that force multiplier for them in Nigeria. Though the UN report does mention that Ansaru was sort of not where they should be capability-wise, um, even though they are, they put allegiance to AQIM, JNIM, and nominally support them. It seems like they've been kind of bogged down with interfighting with bandits that they used to support uh, in northwest Nigeria, and that's sort of hindering their their capabilities to wake up with with JNIM. But regardless, we're now facing this contiguous, you know, battle space threat uh, from again, yeah, the borders of Mauritania to Cameroon, and that is a huge, worrying, you know, threat that uh, is actually a, re- a real possibility now. Which, if anyone would have said that ten years ago, you would have been called crazy or a warmonger, as most people like to call us. <laughs> right. Yeah, because we want to create the Islamic State and Al Qaeda in these countries. That's all all we're into. Yeah. Go ahead, Edmund. Yeah, I mean that, that's a brilliant, brilliant piece of analysis by Caleb. I mean, really, really well set out, and completely endorse what he said. Uh, I just add one point. Of course, this break off from ECOWAS, the uh, having Nigeria, uh, Mali, and Chad. Excuse me, Nigeria, Mali, and uh, Burkina Faso. Um, Niger, Mali, and Burkina Faso, excuse me, break off from ECOWAS. Um, uh, and that's that's very troubling, you know. So you've got uh, you've got this sort of fault line uh, that, that Caleb is describing, you know, actually now playing out as a, even a fault line in a regional organization. And of course, this is linked with the, um, the, the, the sort of collapse of governance in those countries as well, in, you know, the coup in Niger, um, military rule in, uh, in Mali, similar problems in Burkina. Um, and of course, from ECOWAS's point of view, you know, they, 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 they saw that as a problem. And uh, I don't know how well that's been handled internally, but clearly it hasn't gone well. And, and now and now you have an actual fracture. Uh, and the worry, of course, is that, you, you know, three countries, um, they're all big countries in terms of their um, surface area. So we're talking about a large uh, proportion of the whole Western Sahel. Um, and with the governance problems there and, of course, the uh, the fact that they would rather uh, listen, they'd rather contract in help from somebody like Wagner uh, rather than uh, traditional counterterrorism alliances. This is compounding the problem even further. And and so here again, I want to mention you know, a little bit of a crisis, I think, in sort of from the UN's point of view, and I don't mean the monitoring team, I mean the wider UN um, and uh, and France, you know, because France had this sort of special position of influence uh, in these countries. And that has gone really badly wrong. And, you know, so France has, France has effectively lost its influence uh, in uh, in Mali, in Burkina, in Niger. Um, the United Nations has been kicked out of Mali. So this the, 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 the United Nations mission, uh, MINUSMA, which was a huge mission in Mali, is in the process of uh, evacuating from uh, Mali. And... Uh, what this is doing, I think, is it's calling into question the whole regional dynamic. You know, do people want to rely on their Western alliances, traditional Western partnerships? 
do they want to rely on the UN? But but may, but then all the baggage that that brings in terms of you know the UN wanting you to uh, sign up for all sorts of um, uh, agendas that you know that the UN insists on, you know, whether related to gender or things of that kind, um, which are often difficult sells in these uh, more traditional societies. So I think we have the makings here of a a, a massive collapse of governance problem at the heart of the Sahel uh, and, and obvi- with obvious ramifications uh, for uh, for a future terrorist threat. You know, let, let's suppose that one of these countries, Niger, uh, Mali or Burkina, partly or entirely uh, ends up um, in the hands of one of these terrorist groups, then how long before that turns into a launching base for uh, attacks outside the region? So that's a major concern. Uh, and then uh, following Caleb's invitation to go on to uh, Nigeria. And I thought his point about Ansari was absolutely spot on. It is interesting, you know, basically northern Nigeria has a lot of problems of extremism and banditry. Um, it is odd that northwestern Nigeria hasn't fully integrated itself into this sort of um, contiguous area of uh, of jihadi instability. Um, but it is still pretty, it's, it's highly problematic. And Ansaru is is problematic and it is associated with Al-Qaeda. So I agree that this is a threat that then spreads all the way across to the uh, to the IS West Africa province area of operations. Now, IS West Africa province is based in northeastern Nigeria and the Lake Chad Basin. So you, you and it sort of it, it, it crosses over the borders into Cameroon uh, and into Chad and into Niger, into into eastern Niger. Um, and ISWAP, West Africa Province, is also the host of the Al Furqan office of ISIS. And so the Al Furqan office is one of the three. Uh, offices that people talk about as having really thrived in this in this ISIL global structure. So we've already talked about the Al Qarar office in Somalia, the Al Sadiq office uh, is in Afghanistan, and then the Al Furqan office in the Lake Chad basin. And the uh, the report is, you know, there's not a huge amount here about Algeria, but what there is is very worrying, and it includes this figure of uh, four to seven thousand ISWAP fighters. Now that's a lot. That's a really that's that's maybe the largest single fighting force of ISIL fighters anywhere in the world now. I think I think I think it's now bigger than ISIL Khorasan uh, and 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 any and any other ISIL uh, affiliate. So um, they continue to have a lot of success against the Nigerian military. The Nigerian military is strong, but it hasn't hasn't been very successful in its tactics. Uh, you haven't just got uh, Iswap there. You have also got the sort of the remnants of Boko Haram. That's still not gone away. And where that's going to end up, it talks about the report talks about two factions of Boko Haram. Um, and, you know, will they sort of end up uh, linking up with, you know, allegiance to Al Qaeda, allegiance to ISIS, merger with Iswap? It's not entirely clear. But but they add to the general instability and violence, um, which is troubling the borders with Cameroon, the borders with Chad, the borders with Niger. Um, And, of course, that part of Nigeria, you know, you're not far from a major city. Uh, Maiduguri is a a big city with an an airport. And uh, so, again, you think, well, at what point uh, does Iswap sort of, you know, raid into, you know, a sort of a serious urban centre? So I think there's a huge amount to worry about with this. And the final point I do want to make about this, and it's not, um, there's not much about it in the report, but um, I think one of the things that we're missing when we talk about 
terror finance in Africa, and I'd be fascinated in Caleb's view of this, um, is um, is the source of the money. So, you know, Al-Qarar office was famously moving money. They were getting money to where it needed to go and in- including all the way to Afghanistan. And that was a remarkable thing. And But, you know, it's firmly established as, as a reality that really happened. Um, we don't quite know what the impact of the killing of Sudani was on the Al-Qarar office. I, I haven't seen any evidence that the Al-Qarar office has stopped doing what it was doing. But, you know, it may be that if Al-Sudani was a sort of a genius in this form of, um, you know, moving money, managing networks for financial transfers, maybe Al-Qarar office has taken a hit from that. I I certainly hope it has. Um, But, you know, Al-Fakhan is a big and very significant office. And if we think that the money that they are moving is not just coming from ISIL core, it's not just being sort of moved in, you know, maybe indirectly through Turkey or something of that kind and then moved on from Somalia. But if we're also talking about fundraising in Africa, and I think we must be, then the question is wealthy donors in Africa, particularly in wealthy countries like South Africa and Nigeria, you know, to what extent is their money that is funneling into this uh, financial pipeline for ISIL uh, within Africa? And, and I, again, I feel that this, we're talking about intelligence gaps. There is a big intelligence gap here on Nigeria. Because Nigeria is a huge economy, and there are a lot of very wealthy individuals, and it's a very divided society uh, with a strong sense of people in the north that they don't feel properly uh, represented uh, by, the, uh, by the national government or in the national government. And so I think we need to get to the source of the funds. And is Alpha Khan office now stepping up and taking on part of the role that Al-Qarar office uh, has been carrying out. Bill, if I could make the, the transition Absolutely. here. I think this is this is stepping into, you know, basically my, my day-to-day job. Um, uh, Bridgeway, my other employer, you know, we've we've written an entire paper on sort of the, the financing in East Africa, Central Africa, and Southern Africa as part of our, our field work that we've done across all those regions uh, over the last two years, um, sort of following that money that Edmund is talking about. And you know, the big thing of the source is, you know, yeah, the, especially for, for Nigeria, there have been wealthy donors. But if we look at East, Central and Southern Africa, it's, it's crime. Uh, it is it is largely sourced by crime, by extortion, by, quote unquote, taxes on businesses, uh, by robberies, kidnappings for ransom uh, in both Somalia and South Africa, wherein this, this money is then pulled together by Al-Qarar and then dispersed across the network, uh, either you know, in Nairobi, in Kampala, in, you know, Maputo, in, in Mozambique, in Johannesburg, you know, wherever an Islamic State cell network group or whatever within that Al-Qarar sphere of influence needs the money, that's where it's going to go. Um, and I, I think there still is a large intelligence gap because after Bala Sudani, uh, you know, by all indications, it, it doesn't seem to have stopped. Um, so this is something that the international community really needs to work on. Um, especially in East, Central, and Southern Africa, is, is pulling resources together to follow that money and sort of you know stop it. Um, which is again, I understand it, it's it's easier said than done, um, but this is something that uh, countering finance needs to be uh, to be done. It, it's looking at criminal networks as part of this fundraising apparatus for the Islamic State, um, and the report kind of mentions this with a weird weird caveat. Um, they have you know, member states 
noted that it is a misnomer to identify the network operational in East and Central Africa as ISIL. Rather, it is a network of veteran battle-hardened fighters and religious figures who have, at some stage, all worked together. Dot, dot, dot. ISIL is effectively leveraging these pre-existing networks in an attempt to build a viable structure in the region. You know, that, that, that's true, but it, it's sort of only half true. Of, yeah, they, they've largely pre-existed, uh, the Islamic State, these, these criminal networks, um, especially smuggling networks uh, in between Somalia and Yemen, where IS Somalia has also raised funds or gotten funds smuggled through. Um, but all of these networks know who they're working for. They, they know that they're doing this on the behest of or at the orders of the Islamic State regional leaders. Uh, or and sometimes they've they've openly pledged allegiance to the Islamic State. Um, so yes, they've they've pre-existed, but you know, for all intents and purposes, they are they are the Islamic State, and this is how the Islamic State operates. You know, in in sort of that sphere of Africa, uh, I don't have much experience in West Africa or Nigeria for for that office, but at least if we extrapolate what's happening in Al Qarar, we could probably make the safe assumption that other offices are operating the same way. Although I just know from open source reporting that. Uh, you know, ISWAP in Nigeria has gotten donations from wealthy Muslims, uh, especially in the Gulf. Um, that really hasn't happened so much, you know, for, you know, ISIS, Central Africa province and DRC or Mozambique. Uh, but that doesn't mean it, it, it won't happen in the future or it hasn't happened and just no one has detected it. Caleb, if I can make a really simple analogy, you know, a lawyer who represents the mafia and who's intimately involved with their business and provides advice to mafia leaders, we would call them a mafia lawyer, right? If yeah, I'm that would a, be a consigliere. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so if I'm in accounting or if I'm a financial network that is working closely with the Islamic State, I think it would be safe to assume to call it. And, yeah, and, and just, you know, in the paper that, that we wrote, you know, it was published at GWU, um, but one of the you know, financial facilitators in Johannesburg, who kind of ran one of these networks, he wasn't ideological. He he was purely in it for the money. However, and here's the, the big thing, he still knew who he was working for. He still knew who that who that was benefiting, even though he himself wasn't ideological. So, you know, that there's two elements there that, you know, really I think people should pay attention to of, you know, these criminal networks sometimes pre-exist and also maybe not be ideological, ideologically aligned with IS. They're still taking the money from, and they know what they're actually benefiting. So, yeah, sure, that that caveat they added is half right, but it seems more of pressure from more local governments to say that than what it actually is. Um, but you know, minor gripe, minor gripe. Just to say, I, I completely agree with Caleb on this. I think he's, I think he's got it spot on. And I just want to, you know, make the analogy with with examples from elsewhere in the world. Yeah. So let's get, let's move away from Africa and talk about pre-existing groups in Southeast Asia that pledged allegiance to ISIL, or uh, you know, or, or indeed, you know, a group like. Uh, the one in Jawzjan in Afghanistan that was ex-Taliban that went and uh, pledged allegiance to ISIL a few years ago. Um, the fact that you're a pre-existing group, or indeed the fact that you're wrapped up with facilitation and organized crime that is non-ideological, is no bar to being considered part of ISIL. And if you've pledged allegiance, and if ISIL has accepted that allegiance, and if you are colluding with uh, a regional network structure, that is that is designed both to move propaganda in one direction, so that it, you know, sort of videos are, uh, and coverage of uh, operations gets out into the world, and uh, and technical help or people or money can be provided uh, also through that structure. Then you're ISIL. 
I couldn't agree more. I think the distinctions are being made here for various reasons. Probably some countries want to, you know, soften the blow of maybe their their people they, you know, involved in their people being involved with this is, you know, doesn't look good. But uh, I can some countries may not be doing enough to stop it. Yeah, want exactly. to obfuscate the actual relationship. Yep, exactly. Last topic. Let's move on to East Africa. We have a, a lot going on in East Africa. It's not just Somalia. Somalia is obviously a big part of it. I'm going to read what the report says about um, what Shabab and Somalia, and then we'll lead. The, and then we'll start the discussion on the wider network, both Al Qaeda and the Islamic State in East Africa. But here's what it says about Somalia. Um, I'm going to again quoting the report. Quote. In Somalia, the federal government continues to pursue its military offensive against al-Shabaab. Member states assess that despite suffering significant losses from targeted airstrikes and military operations, al-Shabaab remains resilient. Al-Shabaab's financial and operational capacity remains undiminished with an estimated seven to 12,000 fighters. Al-Shabaab continues to generate an estimated $100, $100 million each year, mostly from its illicit taxation in Mogadishu in Somalia, $100 million. That's quite a bit. Um, and then uh, and then it continues. Uh, Thus far, Al-Shabaab has absorbed most of the tax by the government. Member states assess that Al-Shabaab has the upper hand in the next phase of the government's offensive. I'm going to just point out something quickly. Caleb, you made this in a conversation that, you know, they're saying they're, they're suffering significant losses. And yet Al-Shabaab has the upper hand in the next phase of the offensive. Yeah, both Take things that, can't be Caleb. true. I mean, both things can't be true. I mean, they start out by saying that they've suffered significant setbacks. But yet we're still saying that they have the same amount of troop numbers that they've always said, seven to 12,000. And we're also still saying that they're making $100 million a year. So if they're suffering significant losses, you would expect to see a reduction in those numbers, you know, both from the financing and the, and the, the troop number, but we're not. Uh, so I think it's quite clear, you know, one, who that information is coming from, and two, uh, you know, really the resiliency that they, they state later of Shabab. I mean, they're they're right in that regard that Shabab has weathered this this large counteroffensive against it, um, and in many cases they've taken back some of the bases, some of the towns that they've lost, and others they've they've effectively been pushed out. But as you mentioned, another sort of theme of this podcast is the ebb and flow. Um, you know, where they've lost in some areas, they've they've gained in others. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, they haven't been defeated, uh, and the Somali government keeps putting these ridiculous dates on their defeat, which really only help nothing. Of saying that you know in one year we'll defeat them. Well, the year came and gone. So now it's by the end of 2024 we're going to defeat them. Yet you know still we're still early, I guess. So there's still time for Somalia to to jump on that. But like it's not looking good based on precedent, and especially when they still can't effectively start the phase two of the operation, which is supposed to be in Jubaland and sort of the southwest state, uh, which borders Ethiopia. You know those regional forces are doing operations, yes, but the phase two is supposed to be a giant surge of the federal forces and that really hasn't came yet from political infighting from from clan structures you know it's just it's just not happening so all of the offensive is still in the center where in some areas shabab does have a more tenuous clan relationship uh in others they have very strong clan relationships uh so it's just again ebb and flow but as of right now shabab still has the upper hand and let's not forget that the african union forces which provide a huge bolster for the local Somali forces is leaving. They're still doing the drawdown. Uh, their intention is still to leave by the end of, I think, this year or next year. And they're not changing that as of right now, as of the time of recording. So all Shabab has to do, which they've done 
during these you know gradual withdrawal phases is wait. When the African Union force leaves a base and hands it over to the, the Somali National Army, they attack it, and most times they overrun it. So really, for Shabab, it's it's a waiting game right now. And I know the U.S. is is scrambling to try to bolster the, the Somali army, as well as Turkey and some other states like UAE and Qatar. Uh, but without deploying the tens of thousands of troops that the African Union did, I, I don't see... I don't see that helping the the SNA, which is already sort of crumbling in some areas. And to be fair to the SNA and Somalia, they've done better in other areas. I don't want to disparage the entire counteroffensive because some areas they have done very well and they've taken out some key leaders. Uh, But it's not enough and it doesn't come, you know, fast enough, if that makes sense. They need continuous, you know, wins, but they're only getting sporadic wins. The question of holding, we're still, in many cases, relying on local clan militia to hold territory gained over Shabab. We still haven't figured that problem out of how is that going to work in the long run. And I think that's a big question everyone needs to ask. Um, and I, I think just to move the, the conversation along, because we're getting long on time, uh, just a few points for, for DRC and Mose. Uh, for DRC, uh, the, the report seems to be spot on um, with, you know, obviously my work at Bridgeway or Bridgeway Foundation in general deals with the the ADF or, or ice cap issue in DRC. Um, that information seems to be largely correct. Um, whereas Moe's, I, I think there's a, a few uh, disagreements. I, I think, again, minor disagreements, um, but something that I do want to bring up. Um, and some of these points are, are not wholly mine. Um, these are also part of discussions from my, my coworker, Ryan O'Farrell. Um, Ryan, who also works at Bridgeway with me, he, he closely follows Moe's. Mozambique is, is certainly his, his sphere of influence or expertise. Um, but you know, some of the points they made about Mozambique appear to be either outdated sort of un you know not true um and, and this is just the the process i mean that these reports take months at a time right and then they're out um but you know the 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 numbers that they state that that ismos has appears to be low um they when they attack they, they sort of attack in 40 to 60 man groups sometimes 100 and d- just based on attack patterns around you know northern mozambique there seems to be at least four to six of these groups um so if you do the math, it seems to be more than what the UN is saying. Um, then one little minor um, disagreement is that of Ibn Omar. Ibn Omar being the sort of former leader of ISMOs. Uh, he was killed uh, last year. You know, big loss. Regardless of what I'm about to say, that's a big loss for ISMOs and beat that really hampers their capabilities. He was a very influential leader. But his successor, Farido, Farido Arune, uh, sort of already became... The, the leader before Ibn Omar was killed. Um, Farido has taken a more relaxed approach to civilians, whereas with Ibn Omar, who's a very, I, I mean, harsh against civilians, I mean, it's massacres, whereas Farido is kind of taking directives from, allegedly from the Islamic State central leadership that you need to be more, you know, nicer to the to the civilians. And that was sort of already happening before Ibn Omar was killed. Um, again, still a, still a big loss that Ibn Omar has gone. Um, and the one thing that the, the report doesn't mention, and this is just because of time uh, and when this is happening and when this was you know written, is that IS Mose is sort of coming back from uh, huge setbacks. I mean, there was the Rwandan intervention against them as well as the Southern African uh, intervention against them. And this, again, gets back into the ebbs and flows of conflicts that we've talked about this entire podcast is the Southern African troops are leaving. Their mandate is over, so they'll be withdrawing soon. It's very unclear if the Rwandans can kind of step up and manage all of this on their own. And, you know, 
IS Mozambique is already taking advantage of that, and they're surging in some of the their, their districts, and, and especially in uh, Macomia, where they sort of their headquarters. And in the last several weeks, they've reoccupied villages and they've reoccupied a, a city, and that's their first large territorial occupation since 2021, when the Rwandans drove them out of some of these towns. So they're already resurging, and that's it's not a good sign, especially with these these you know Southern African troops leaving. Um, and the Islamic State is having a heyday with this. I mean, they're they're making a big deal over these Dawa or you know proselytizing campaigns that you know IS Mozambique is doing in these newly occupied areas. You know, so it, it's not good. And I think Mozambique will probably become another big issue, like it was in 2021. Um, and then, just the last point I want to make, I guess for the entire podcast, is they use this this term that I absolutely hate, which is that there's no evidence of direct command and control. And I think that is a bullshit metric uh, that, that really has no meaning. Of yeah, you're not going to see a leader in Iraq or Syria or Al Qarar giving them day to day, hey, you need to attack this village, hey, you need to do this. It's more of these big centralized directives or strategies rather than these day to day, you know, things that should be autonomous for the local regional leaders. Which Bill, you make that point all the time of like DOD of is you know a four-star general really going to be telling, you know, a captain here, here, and here every day. Not necessarily. So it's the same thing here. Uh, So this command and control is just another way to kind of move the goalposts for the the, the actual relationship between IS Central and IS MOS. And it's just, it it does no good. And that's my, that's my probably big gripe with the report is that, that one line. We have to keep in mind, you know, again, a lot of this is member states, no yeah. member states. I mean, states. I, I definitely, yeah, it's definitely coming from a member state, probably, but it's just like that for ISMOs in Central Africa province and DRC, that's the new buzzword. We've moved on from, oh, they're not really the Islamic State to how Islamic State are they? And it's just centralized. They're, yeah, they're and it's just moving the goalposts from the argument. Affiliated. Could have been dead. Yeah. This argument should have been dead years ago, but it keeps re- re- resurging. And it just, it drives me crazy. If you have to keep making these arguments, there's probably something wrong with them. Any input on East Africa? Too much there for me to unpack, uh, you know, I mean, but some very interesting challenge. I mean, the one thing I would say about the command and control is, you know, quoting from the report, regional member states maintain that there is no clear evidence of command and control orders. So, I mean, that is as clear as the monitoring team ever gets to saying we have got to include this in the report because we have been given this explicitly by more than one regional member state. We're not endorsing that this in analysis, but this is what we have been told. Uh, and that's part of the sort of the coding that exists within the report. You know, you may well have uh, half a dozen other member states who say there is command and control, but but uh, but you know, you 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 have to you have to make the point if it's been briefed to you. By regional member by regional member states, but yeah, point taken on that. Uh, on Somalia, I just I guess a couple of points I wanted to add. I mean, I think you know Caleb talks about the ebb and flow. Uh, the ebb and flow is is definitely a thing, um, and the fact that the this is a snapshot of the past six months, and then you know you mentioned something that's happened in January. Well, yeah, that's right. 
things things are changing all the time and there are things that are not captured by this report because it was drafted in December. Um, and I think I don't think there is a contradiction between sustaining losses and being resilient. Um, we used to say that about ISIL in Afghanistan, um, that they were losing quite a lot of people, people being killed in engagements, but but their numbers were growing. You know, they were recruiting. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, I, 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 in that respect, I, I don't I don't think there is a contradiction there in uh, in the Somalia uh, package, you know, that you, that clearly that there is an intensification of conflict there, and Al Shabaab will suffer some losses. But uh, I, I agree, absolutely agree with Caleb that it remains resilient and extremely dangerous. And the long-term prognosis for Somalia strikes me as grim. Um, and of course, this is not helped by this uh, understanding uh, being reached between Ethiopia and Somaliland. You know, and sort of undermining the sort of the, the, the cohesiveness of Somalia. Uh, so I, 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 I share Caleb's concerns, uh, and I think Al Shabaab is. I think you said, uh, Bill, one of the most threatening, um, one of the most strongest and most dangerous um, branches or affiliates of Al Qaeda. Um, and I, I would just add the point that, you know, there's been a lot of um, recent talk about humanitarian exemptions for sanctions. And uh, the terrorist group that, that, that has been active in an area where there has been a humanitarian exemption for the longest period is al-Shabaab. It's an interesting thing about the handling of al-Shabaab by the uh, sanctions committee in the UN is that uh, even though al-Shabaab is a self-proclaimed affiliate of al-Qaeda, and it features very much in this report, in all of the monitoring teams reporting, um, the actual sanctions against al-Shabaab figures are administered by the uh, Somalia um, committee, um, not by the al-Qaeda committee. And that has been a long-term um, grievance for the Kenyans who said that sort of like second, they consider them to be slightly second class sanctions. And, you know, from Kenya's point of view, and I think Kenya is absolutely right about this, Al-Shabaab Al is one of the most dangerous international terrorist groups in the world. Um, and so Kenya would, would say, well, why? Why is this not, why is this being handled as a Somali sanctions issue and not as part of the Al-Qaeda uh, sanctions? And, and part of that was because there was a pre, a long-term existing um, humanitarian carve-out. Uh, so, you know, there was no jeopardy whatsoever for people engaged in humanitarian delivery if that uh, if their uh, humanitarian delivery was being diverted to al-Shabaab. And that has often been trumpeted by the humanitarian community as being a great success of the, al of the Somalia sanctions regime. But I would point to what we've just been saying and agreeing, which is that al-Shabaab is one of the most resilient, one of the most dangerous terrorist organizations in the world. And the prognosis for uh, Somalia remains very bleak and very um, uh, precarious. And Al-Shabaab has a very healthy income stream. And I would ask you, is it a coincidence that that is the case uh, where you have uh, a humanitarian carve-out and whatever has to be paid to Al-Shabaab to facilitate humanitarian delivery, whatever they can extort from uh, activity in the areas that they control, um, is that really nothing to do with the fact that they remain so uh, so well afloat on uh, on fat finances and so successful. Yeah, we have to remember a hundred million dollars in Somalia is probably like I don't know ten billion dollars here in the United States. That's a lot of money to go around, and I I agree with you on that, Edmund. You know, the other point on Somalia I want to quickly make is I think the Somali government has um, 
receive the maximum amount of support it's going to get from the United States, from the African Union. Um, it's not going to get any better than it has. And, and that's what makes the, unless something changes, unless the U.S. turns around and decides to redevote resources, unless the African Union decides to not only keep troops there, but double down and add more troops and get them out on offensive missions. But that's not what- bilateral agreements. There's been talks of, you know, Burundi, Uganda, uh, I think maybe point, Kenya, brother. lateral agreements with Somalia, but it still wouldn't be to the same 18,000 strong deployment that the AU was. Yeah, who's paying for that? That's the thing. The, the You know, the African Union paying for that. The U.S. was providing money. The U.S., and, yeah. Providing money for that. So those things are possible, but I see them, the interest in Somalia, just like in Afghanistan, it's it's waned. Uh, uh, the, you know, the government, U.S. government wants to pivot to China, pivot to Russia. And here we are with basically war breaking out with the Middle East after Hamas's attack. And, you know, where, you know, Somalia is how far down the list now? When it, when we talk of just those three things, those three conflicts, um, I, I just don't I just don't see it happening. That's what gives me that grim prospect. Just a quick point. I mean, Shabab is increasingly a global group of was it two years ago, two or three years ago, there was, you know, a pilot arrested in the Philippines for taking flight lessons. He was a Shabab member. There was another one arrested a few months after that in an unnamed East African country, according to the New York Times, doing the same thing. In the last couple of months, there's been two members of Shabab, including a son of a senior leader, arrested in Costa Rica. Like, who knows what they're doing there? So this is like increasingly growing more global that only benefits al-Qaeda's overall operations, but yet kind of taking them second fiddle, as you know, Edmund has pointed out with the, these differing sanctions. Edmund, any parting thoughts? No, I mean, I th- I'm very glad that Caleb re- you know, sort of revived the point about the pilot training. You know, I mean, it's famous, isn't it, that the big terrorist spectaculars um, often seem to us to come out of the blue, but there are sort of uh, threads that we then look at and think, well, then maybe we should have seen that coming. And, you know, is will the next big attack on civil aviation involve uh, involve uh, Al-Shabaab people who've done pilot training? I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's certainly something to be taken seriously. You know, it's, it's not enough to say, oh, this is a regional issue. Um, if they've got a guy training as a as a, uh, as a as a civilian pilot in the Philippines, that tells you something about global ambition. It sure does. Edmund, thanks for joining Caleb and I on today's episode of Generation Jihad. Always a pleasure to have you on. We will have you back on soon. We'll be talking about the Axis of the Resistance Project in more detail within the next couple of weeks. And if so I could just say on that, Bill, you know, really I, I think I, it's, it's nice to think in terms of a, a connectivity between this pod- podcast and the next, because, uh, you know, the spider at the center of, of the web is Iran, isn't it? And we've already covered this very extensive Iranian uh, featuring in the monitoring team report, you know, not, not necessarily explicitly in the monitoring team, but implicitly. And then when we move on to look at the axis of resistance, I think we'll find a lot of connective tissue. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can listen to us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe to Generation Jihad and leave us a review, preferably a positive one, but only if we earned it. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.